Hello and welcome at the PAVE podcast, created for the professional working to end the violence against women and children. I'm Marianne, your host, and today I'm honored to talk with Lisa Sebeniak. Lisa Sebeniak is a survivor of 10 years of physical, psychological and sexual child abuse by her ex-stepfather. She is a success coach, motivational speaker and blogger, helping shed the stigma of being abused. She is the founder of LifeLikeYouMeanIt.com, dedicated to helping survivors of abuse find their purpose in order to build the life they deserve. You can find the show notes, links and references at www.aliannaloyega.com. But because my name is quite difficult, you can also go to pavepodcast.com and you will go to the same website. Let's get started. I'm really glad to have you on the show. We talked about this for ages and we have these amazing ideas for 2018. But you were sick, I became sick, you married and my partner and I moved in together. Before we go any further, I already know how amazing you are, but can you tell the listeners more about yourself, a little bit about your background, life in general? All right. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It feels like a long time coming. It's been about a year, I think, since we've been starting to plan this. So very, very exciting. So um, yes, so I'm a survivor of child abuse from the age of two until I was 12. So 10 years of my formidable years there from my now ex stepfather who started out with um, physical abuse uh, and then that escalated to emotional psychological abuse where he would tell me every day that I was ugly and useless and worthless and nobody was ever going to love me and I was never going to make anything of my life that I was basically just a waste of space Uh, and then eventually that led to sexual abuse as well so it was a a very um, tumultuous home it was very violent I never knew what to expect Um, I always thought every day could be my last day Um, He would do anything from strangling me, throwing me down the stairs, to holding me under hot water, uh, cutting open my ears and hands with glass, uh, you name it, um, he was willing to do it. Um, And, you know, my mom was was always a very loving and supporting mom, but she, this all happened kind of behind closed doors, right? He never did any of this around my mom. But, you know, when you're a child, you ask a question to your parents and they always have the answer. Back when I was a child, because I'm 43 now, um, there was no internet. So my mom always had all the answers to all the questions that I had. So you kind of think of them as superheroes. You know, they know everything. And so as loving and wonderful as what my mom was, and I knew on one hand that she was not in the room when any of these things were going on. On the other hand, I thought that she would magically know what was going on because she knew everything. And so I thought that, um, that she was making a choice then to stay with him um, and have me in that situation rather than to save me. And I also thought that all the other adults in my life also knew, because of course, you know, my mom was an adult, so all other adults must be the same. And so I thought my teachers and my friends' parents and my family, I thought everybody knew what was happening to me and that I wasn't worth saving. That's why nobody was doing anything to help me. I thought that, you know, they all thought that it was all right, Um, even though I knew there was never a moment that I thought that anything that was going on in my house was okay or normal or right. I thought that because nobody else was helping me that I deserved to go through that. Until I was 12 years old and my mom came to me and asked me flat out, 
if this was happening to me? And I said, yes. And I realized in that moment that she had absolutely no idea. Um, somebody had tipped her off after you know witnessing something and um, and she came straight to me and asked me and in that moment my first reaction was to say no she had to ask me a second time and in that moment at 12 I thought what are you what are you doing this is your moment and I think part of me wanted to say no again because I thought she already knew I thought I was going to get in trouble by saying yes um, but of course, as soon as I said yes, we packed a bag and, and left that house. Um, but you know, when you leave an abuser, everything doesn't go back to normal, right? My mom gave me all of the love that she always had given me as a as a child. She offered me as much support as she could. She immediately tried to find me counseling, but I didn't want to talk about it to anybody because I felt shame. I felt, even though I knew that I wasn't responsible. I also thought that people were going to ask me why, why didn't I, you know, insert whatever, why didn't I leave? Why didn't I tell someone? Why didn't I save myself? Why didn't I yell? Why didn't I fight back? Why didn't I, you know, anything? And I didn't have the answer for that. Right? I thought that meant that I was to blame if somebody was going to ask me that. So I refused to go to counseling. I refused to speak to my mom about it. I refused to speak to anybody about it. And I just stewed in my own turmoil for all my teenage years, right? which are difficult years enough to go through when you've got you know, bullying and you're trying to fit in with other people. And you know, I'm coming out of a household where if there's conflict, you put the person down, right? You say horrible and nasty things to them. And you even get physically violent if that's what you need to. And I knew that those things were wrong, but I didn't know how else to react to something. So if somebody upset me, the only thing that I knew to do was to just turn and walk away because I knew I couldn't push them or hit them. And I knew that I couldn't tell them that they were ugly or useless or worthless or anything like that. So it took a few years of my mom modeling the proper behavior for me to then be able to insert that into my reactions. But at the core, I really believed that I was useless and ugly and worthless, right? I believed those words. And so for the next decade, I told them to myself, and he wasn't in the picture. It was just me and my own mind. But every single day, I made sure that I understood that I was useless and worthless, and I was never going to amount to anything. How did you so, came out of that? Good question. So I, um, my grandmother died, and I was very close with my grandma. And I was riding a bus. I was in college. I was about 20 years old. And I had headphones in listening to my Walkman. <laughs> and I tried to do this mantra in my head. I tried to tell myself that I was ugly and, and useless and worthless. And it was like I had my shoulders grabbed and shaken. It was like something else in my head said, no, this is enough. Stop it right now. And I just sat back and I started to look at my life. I started to look at how I could be standing waiting for a bus in a beautiful sunshiny day and complain to myself that the sun was too bright, right? I could take anything that was going on and I can turn it into drama. I could turn it into something that was negative. And I just all of a sudden started to see my life for what I had made it. And I started realizing that I did that. 
I'm the one making my life like this. And so I went to a bookstore and I got some books and I started reading these books that I, nobody had told me anything about them. I just went into a bookstore and let myself be drawn to whatever. And the first few books that I grabbed just 100% changed my life. They just took me from inside my own bubble, thinking that I was the only one experiencing this, that I was the only one that had this kind of past, that I was the only one that you know, struggled with my day to day and made me realize that I wasn't alone. And the very first book that I came across had nothing to do with abuse. It had nothing to do with self-help even. It do was a book. Do you remember the title of that book? Yes. It was called The Life You Were Born to Live by Dan Millman. And it's a numerology book. It's a book about the numbers of your birth date and hour. And you break them down to you know uh, smaller value numbers. And then you look those numbers up in his book. And it tells you about who you are to the core, what, what promising careers you possibly have, and the type of person that you are working in the negative and in the positive. And I looked at this and it was me. I couldn't believe that you know, somebody I've never met who obviously wrote this book you know, a few years before had written my entire life, basically, how I felt about myself, my drive, my desire, everything was in these pages. And it just, my mind exploded. I just could not believe that I was such a cookie cutter model for, <laughs> right, for having such a unique existence, right? I was a cookie cutter. I was just like everybody else that was born in this number that hadn't experienced anything that I had experienced. How could this be? And so it just, it fueled me to start reading a lot about numerology, which guided me to spirit, which guided me to, um, you know, what that, that feeling was on that bus after my grandma had died and mm -hmm. me feeling that it was her. It was a real presence of her as an angel or a guide that said enough is enough. You've hurt yourself enough. You deserve more than this. You and I find loved. Yeah, I finally started to believe it and started to my journey that was about another decade long on how to actually start believing that I deserved more and how to love myself. Well, we are friends for well over a year now. Yes. And we have a lot in common. Yes. We both have an uncommon name. Yeah. <laughs> for you, it's the last name with me, the first. We both are survivors, uh, as yeah. I like to call it. Uh, yes. of child abuse we both yeah. share several beliefs we both speak to empower others we have yes. shared each other's blog stories on our websites before and one of them re-entered my mind recently and the one that is called understanding the mind of an abuse survivor and yes. you wrote in the blog that well you wrote that one and it still strikes me because we are experts in assessing situations just because we are abused and we know exactly what's going on with people in a room. We know who is hurt, who is in love or mad or what's going to happen in the, in the upcoming minutes or a longer period. Do you think that skill is a burden or do you think it's beneficial? I think it depends what you do with it. Um, I think that, you know, that's part of who I am and it's always going to be a part of who I am. And I think that if I honor that and I try to find 
the positive in that, then I think that that is an incredible skill to have and is wonderful and should be you know, it, it celebrated. But if I try to hold myself back because of that, if I try to judge myself and, and say that, you know, I haven't healed from my past because I still do this when I walk into a room and I look at it negatively, then I think it's a burden. But I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I've gotten far enough in my recovery that my recovery is not about me being perfect because perfection is different for every person that doesn't even make sense it's not even a word that has true value as far as i'm concerned right perfection to me isn't that i don't do it it's that i do do it and i recognize it and it doesn't cause me to react in the same sort of way you know before i walked in a room to try to understand what i needed to do to survive that night right that's what that skill was for is to assess the mood of my abuser and be able to tell if i was going to be black and blue the next day or if there was something i was going to be able to do to avoid that and now when i walk into the room and i do that it's so that i can yeah keep the situation calm and lighthearted if somebody is starting to frustrate somebody else you can add a little bit of humor to it but you know that at the end of the day you're not going to be hurt you're not in the same environment that you were in before. And so I have the confidence to know that that situation is not the same as when I was little, right? But it's still a beautiful skill to have because you can actually help lead the conversation in a certain direction. You can lift the mood of that particular moment, right? You can help people to be laughing instead of mm -hmm. crying. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to look at it. And it's the same for me. Uh, I just figured it out and I, I, I use it the same way um, but I'm also glad with this skill because it gives me a great certainty that I can assess situations quite well yes um, maybe it's a little bit um, so I can control things too yes. <laughs> yeah absolutely um, not many surprises for me what's going to happen next but yes. the con side is that I feel so many things like all the time Yes. And sometimes I don't want to know everything or what's going to happen next. But at the same time, I do want to know because yes. over the years I have learned to trust this skill so much. And exactly. What is the most difficult decision you had to take regarding to the abuse? Telling your mom about, out, about what happened or was it um, in the recovery? Or I think there was a couple of really difficult decisions to to make the first was to say yes when my mom asked my first reaction was to say no and i did say no the first time um, the second um, most difficult thing i think was to um, leave my first husband uh, because i could not talk to him about the abuse i had done so much to heal myself so much to move forward from the abuse but i was very much aware of the fact that it is part of me and it's always going to be part of me and as much as i honor that i can't be in a relationship and be the only one that does honor that i need the person that i am with to be able to understand at, at their core why I react differently to, to some things and why the exact same thing can happen and my reaction can be completely different depending on the day. 
and why I need to remove myself from a situation and, you know, come to terms with why I've reacted the way that I have, what my feelings about it are, and then return to the situation, take full ownership for my part, do my apologies, do my explanation, you know, all the things that I need to do that maybe are far beyond what other people need to do when they get frustrated or, you know, angry or, or whatever it is. If my partner, if the person that is supposed to, you know, be the most important person in my life besides myself can't understand that because I can't have a conversation with them about my abuse and what it was like and what the recovery has been like and what it's like to live in my skin now as a survivor of that abuse. I can't live like that. And so that a really hard decision for my own sanity for my own ability to um, honor myself was to leave that relationship because we couldn't have a single conversation about the abuse at all. He just could not handle it, which I respect. I, I do understand that that's a very difficult thing to hear your loved one talk about. But at the same time, I had to honor myself so that I could continue to heal and grow. But what a difference in kind of relations you have now with your husband yes um, yes absolutely and it must be so much difference in depth uh and connection as well absolutely absolutely it's 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 the level of security yes. um that i connection. never thought yeah i never thought possible this man knows absolutely everything about me in, including my absolute darkest thoughts um and he as much as he doesn't understand because he's not gone through it himself, he respects me and he respects the fact that I will take ownership for, it might take me some, a few hours, it might take me a few days, you know, however long it's going to take me for me to unravel whatever it is I'm going through, I will be completely open and honest and I will accept responsibility for my you know, my reactions or, or whatever has happened there. And he finds that to be moving and you know to see the joy in his eyes when we have that kind of connection gives me the level of security that I never thought was going to be possible in my life it's absolutely incredible and I'm melting like, over third, here. Very difficult, I know right I think there's a, um, a third really difficult thing that I had to decide as well and that was to come out I, I call it my coming out, right? Like if I was coming out of the closet to announce that I was lesbian or, or gay, um, I had to come out to, to say that this happened to me and I had to come out um, in a way where I, I couldn't just say, and, and you know what this is like, I couldn't just say, I'm a survivor of child abuse and end it there. I had to go and paint the picture for people. I had to make sure that, you know, people that are resonating with me can read about just what type of abuse I went through and what that was like and and How to put it, it all out there to tell your husband um for the first time because I remember that I told my partner the first day um well at a first date yes I, I warned him yeah not 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 really a warning but um I told him well I do have a past and with a lot of abuse in it and he was just from that moment so patient so yeah um sincere so uh, interested in my past and he wanted to learn from it as well and do you recognize that 
Absolutely. I used to, when I was a teenager, you know, again, I did, I was ashamed. I didn't want anybody to know. So when I was in a relationship, I did everything I could to not share what had happened. Um, and now as an adult, I realize, especially after my first marriage, um, you know, and, and thinking it was okay to not talk about it. Uh, after that ended, I decided that that was going to be one of the first things that I would share with somebody because their ability to handle it, their ability no. to let me talk about it was going to be key. And if they, if they weren't going to be able to, to handle. handle it, that's fair. You know, I, I can't ask any more of them, but it also wouldn't be fair for me or them to try to continue to make a relationship that I already know that one major relationship has failed because of not being able to share this. I wasn't going to let that happen again. So I, I told him very early on You're as well this. within the first couple of <laughs> dates. Yeah. Yeah. He passed the test. Exactly. <laughs> and he get it. And got a really wonderful woman in return too. Yes. Thank you. Uh -huh. Well, and you know, it's important to say that not every person can handle that, whether they're uh -huh. male or female, and it doesn't mean that they're weak. It just, you know, I, I can't imagine when I look at some of the words that I've written, uh, you know, to, to tell my story in my blogs, I look back and I read them over sometimes. And, you know, a couple of them, I, I wrote them two years ago. I forget my own words. I forget what I had, how much I detail I went into. Yeah. Another question. Yes. What are you trying to accomplish at the moment? Or is there spe something special going on? I know we have some amazing ideas. We've got so many ideas. On. Yeah. You've got <laughs> things on your end as well. Um, well, basically my overarching goal here is to break the silence and the stigma of being abused, right? I really... Um, what I would love to be able to accomplish in this career is to be able to get to a point where we're able to talk openly as a society about abuse um, and the effects that that has on us. Just like we're, we're starting to be more comfortable with talking about mental health issues, uh, right? In Canada, my, my home country, and here in Britain, where I live now, um, we have campaigns about mental health, right? And um, I would love to see the same sort of things where people can be free to express themselves about you know surviving domestic violence or child abuse or rape or you know whatever it is that they have survived um, without having to worry about the judgment that would come on them right um, so I, I'm doing that by trying to get on podcasts and radio shows and television shows and do motivational speaking to share my particular story uh, and hopefully to do that um, with, in conjunction with others that have gone through other things like you and I have talked about doing something together to talk about the domestic violence on your end and the child abuse on my end and, uh, and see how many people we can help by spreading our message. Uh, we are going to do a lot of fun things. Yes, uh, I hope. Uh, when you're old and are looking back to your life, what do you want to have accomplished? What is the desired outcome of your work? Um, I Overall, I want to be able to raise the vibrational energy of people in this world by helping them to find their purpose so that they can build the life that they deserve. And, you know, naturally, the most people that are going to find their way to me are going to be people that resonate with my particular story. And so that tends to be women, and it tends to be women who have survived some sort of abuse or trauma to help them find 
um, meaning in their experience, help them find purpose in their life, whatever that is, whether it's to go on to help others like what you and I are doing, or whether that is to go on and be truly healthy and happy in their own lives. And because you never know how many people you come across, even on a daily basis, never mind in your whole lifetime, that you impact in the positive or the negative. And so all you have to do is try to have your impactfulness be positive and that will spread right other people will then also impact people on the positive and overall that raises the energy of us as a society right wow that's really beautiful said and in regarding to your work what is the thing that you worry about the most and what are you most eager to solve um i think what i worry about the most is you know, the work that you and I do, we, it's very personal, right? We have to share our stories. We have to share what it was like to feel the way that we felt when we were going through our abuse and when we were recovering from our abuse. And so the person I am today is very different from the person that I was it, it obviously different parts of my life. And, you know, part of surviving, you dissociate from all the emotions and all the memories from what you went through. But um, as a role of a healer, a role of a helper and a coach, like what we do, we need to experience those over and over and over again with each of our clients. We can't dissociate from them, which means that we have to make sure that we are continually allowing ourselves to heal and grow and taking the next step for our own health and well-being, right? In a way, we can't really leave it in the past because otherwise our clients that we're working so closely with are not going to be able to relate to us or feel that we relate to them. And so that one of my big worries is that I won't take the time for myself to make sure that I continue on my path for growth and healing because I'll get so caught up in helping others that I'll forget that my health is just as important as everybody else's and that I truly can't come from a place of service. If I am a mess, <laughs> I need to make sure I'm not a mess. <laughs> and what are you going to do to change it? Because it, I just recognize so much in that story. Mm -hmm. There's a, there are so many things we have to do on a daily basis and it's really easy to forget about ourselves. Yes. And this, this line of work is quite hard. It's, you have to be confronted uh, with a lot of nasty things, not only of our own past, but also um, what other people are going through. Yeah, so exactly. It's it's not an easy topic to uh, surround yourself with. So how do you take care of yourself? Well, what I do is I practice what I preach. So a lot of what I'm doing now is coaching. I'm doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, success coaching, I call it, um, with people. And of course, they're all at different phases of their healing or growth. And so I have them doing different things, depending obviously on what their needs are. But I try to make sure that my day is set up in the same way that I'm asking their day to be set up. So for example, that means setting intentions at the beginning of my day, you know, taking some time to meditate, um, taking some time to do positive visualizations of how I see my day unfolding, me reacting to to, if I know that I've got some stress that's going to be popping up that day, how I visualize myself handling that situation, um, how I visualize my immediate future and my more long-term future, how I can set an intention in place so that I can reach those goals, I can take the opportunities that approach 
me in that day, recognize as opportunities, or take time at the end of the day to make sure that I go through a gratitude list, list all the things that I am grateful for happening that day, uh, and take time to actually decompress from my day. So, you know, depending on what I've got my clients doing, I try to model it, even though all the work I do is online and they will have no idea whether I'm doing this or not. You, you've got to come from a place of, of wellness and service. You're not just speaking to somebody and telling them what to do. They will be able to sense if you are really at one with what your message is. And so I make sure that I take the time. If I run into somebody who um, we discover that what really helps them is reading, then I I make them take time out of their day to read. And so then I go and I find an extra half an hour out of my day to make sure that I do what I want to do, which happens to be reading as well, which is why that popped into my head. But right, I try to make sure that I'm leading by example and that I'm practicing what I preach. And my main message to no matter what my client is doing is that you're worth it. You're worth the time. You will always make the time to do the things that are important to you. So if you're putting yourself last, that's a really deep internal message of what you really think of yourself and how you value yourself. And that needs to change. And so no matter how busy my day is, I must do the same thing. I must take time for myself as well. And uh, you talked about books uh, at the beginning of this episode too. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it before the recording as well. And you have another book that really inspired you. Can you tell them a bit more about that too? Yes, so I have I had two major books that really inspired me when I was a teenager, you know, 18 to 20 years old and started this kind of soul searching journey. So one is called uh, One Day My Soul Just Opened Up by um, Ianla Van Zandt, probably saying her first name wrong. I apologize. <laughs> um, and the second is called The Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. And both of these books just, again, I was on a, a path to find spirit for, for myself. I was never very religious, but I uh, became very spiritual in the beginning of my journey. And so both of these books were really very impactful, right? To talk about a soul and to talk about um, kind of a mission that you might have in life for yourself gave me power. It gave me my power back. Right? It, it made me feel like I was making decisions that were opening up or closing doors for myself and that only I had the power to be able to do that. And nobody else deserved to have that power and nobody else had the ability to give me my power or take away my power. And both of these books really instilled that and really got me thinking on a level that I had never thought before and set me off on my journey. And is there not a quote I'm really a lover of books and quotes because they teach me a lot of things. And do you have a quote that inspires you or helps you along the way? I do. And I wish that there was an author for this one, but I <laughs> cannot find the actual author. Um, but this is kind of my new mantra, which is she needed a hero. So that's what she became. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. I really love that one. You have yeah. to be your own hero to accomplish Exactly. That. That was the first. That was the first major lesson that I really had to learn in my recovery because I was damsels in distress. Exactly, and and that's that's the thing, right? It's it's that old adage of you can't properly 
love somebody else if you don't love yourself. It's the same sort of thing. You can't expect that somebody else is going to come along and treat you the way that you deserve if you don't think that you deserve to be treated any better, right? And so you need to do the work yourself to be able to realize what you deserve and what you're worth. You need to discover your value. You need to fall in love with yourself before you're ever going to even recognize that somebody else has. And you're the only one that can do that. And I think that's an excellent, well, sentence to end the show. Thank you so <laughs> much for being on to the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it has been a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, yes, it felt so good to finally do it. This was the right moment. We had waited for a reason. Thank you, Lisa, for being a guest to the show. And I want to thank the listener too for tuning in. Don't forget Lisa's words that you can't properly love someone else if you don't love yourself. You can't expect someone to come along and treat you the way that you deserve. Because you need to do the work first to be able to realize what you deserve and what you are worth. You need to discover your value. You need to fall in love with yourself first before you can ever realize that someone else has. Daryl, thank you for listening. Until the next episode of PAVE Podcast.